I'm not as young as I used to be, which means I can't treat my body the way I once did. In fact, last year's medical checkup didn't turn out the best, so I decided I needed to change things up and start eating healthier. One of the ways I do that is by making smoothies. But smoothie shop prices can be pretty high, and making them at home always seem like a pain. You gotta pull the blender out, find the right attachments, set everything up, and then cleaning everything is annoying, making it difficult to quickly whip up a breakfast smoothie in the morning. That's why I'm glad to tell you about the BlendJet 2 Portable Blender. Like I said, it's portable, so you can blend up a smoothie at work, a protein shake at the gym, or even a margarita on the beach. It's small enough to fit in a cup holder, but powerful enough to blast through tough ingredients like ice and frozen fruit with ease. BlendJet 2 is whisper quiet, so you can make your morning smoothie without waking up the whole house. That's especially important to me because I wake up before the rest of my family, and once my kids are up, my morning work routine is pretty much shot to hell. And best of all, BlendJet 2 cleans itself. Just blend water with a drop of soap and you're good to go. BlendJet 2 has over 30 plus colors and patterns to choose from, so if you don't like one design, there's definitely one that suits your personality. So what are you waiting for? Go to BlendJet.com and grab yours today. Be sure to use my promo code, SuperCinemaPod12, to get 12% off your order and free two-day shipping. No other portable blender on the market comes close to the quality, power, and innovation of the BlendJet 2. They guarantee you'll love it or your money back. Blend anytime, anywhere with the BlendJet 2 portable blender. Go to BlendJet.com and use my code, SuperCinemaPod12, that's SuperCinemaPod and the number's 1-2, to get 12% off your order and free two-day shipping. Shop today and get the best deal ever. I could be a superhero! I could fight crime, protect the innocent. Work for world peace! But first... <laughs> Hold on to your lug nuts! It's time for an overhaul! Welcome to the Superhero Cinephiles Podcast. I'm your host, Perry Constantine, and I'm welcoming a new guest today, and that is a award-winning uh, comic creator, uh, cartoonist, and that is uh, Ryan Estrada. Ryan, how are you doing today? I'm doing great. I'm ready to talk movies. I'm ready to talk movies, too. Um, I'm glad you picked this one. We're going to be talking about uh, 1994's The Mask. This was... Uh, and we'll talk more about it once you get into that discussion, and just why I was kind of excited to talk about this. But before we do that, why don't you tell the listeners a little bit about, a little bit about yourself, who you are, what you do, all that fun stuff. Well, as I mentioned, I'm Ryan Estrada. I call myself an uh, artist, author, and adventurer because I travel around the world uh, making comics. Uh, people may know me from uh, Band Book Club or uh, my upcoming book, Occulted. I do a series called Student Ambassador. A lot more people probably know me from a comic that went viral on the internet called Learn to Read Korean in 15 Minutes. But I make all sorts of comics that you can find at ryanestrada.com. Uh, uh, some are fiction and some are true stories about very dumb things I've done while traveling. 
Okay, very cool. And uh, how'd you get into into comics? What what was kind of, uh, were you always an artist from like a young age or did it come later in life? What's kind of your origin story, as we say? Yeah, I was making comics as a baby. Like before I have memories, my mom's like, you were making comics before you could talk. And then among my first words were like, I'm going to be a professional cartoonist. And I decided to start going pro when I was six. And I started pitching my comics to newspapers and it took 10 years of bothering my local newspaper before before finally like, fine, kid. All right, here, you can do a weekly comic. And I've been <laughs> going since and uh, making graphic novels. And I've gotten to work on comics for uh, Star Trek and uh, Popeye and Garfield and all sorts of like all the things I loved as a kid. So, yeah, it's just it, I've never not made comics. I don't know what else I could possibly do. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I feel you on that. Um, so uh, what was your your history with comics in general? What comics did you, I, I assume obviously you were, you were a fan of comics as a kid, but what kind of stuff were you into as a kid? Uh, how did you first get interested in comics? Yeah, um, you know, when, I was a, when I was younger, it was always like my first introduction was newspaper strips and reading all the, you know, all the little three pa panel gags and then moving up to comic books and uh, you know, early on I was getting it so early that it was mostly like a lot of licensed comics. Uh, you know, all the, my favorite cartoon characters now in the funny pages and, you know, moving up to graphic novels and really just exploring everything I could. Like I was so obsessed with a kid. I'm like, I have to read everything because I know this is what I'm going to do and I need to learn everything that I can. Okay. Very cool. Um, and uh, so today we're talking about, the mask uh 1994 uh films uh based on the dark horse comics starring jim carrey first movie starring cameron diaz this was her introduction into movies um what was your history with this movie no i'd never read the comic and uh having read it recently to prepare for this like it's probably good because it's not really a kid's comic um but I, you know, I went into it because, you know, that, that was the year that everyone was all about Jim Carrey. It was his miracle year where he had uh, three movies that like blew up and uh, made $700 million. And then the next year, like all three of them had animated Saturday morning cartoon shows. So that was like, you, if, you know, if you grew up in that time, you couldn't not go see a Jim Carrey movie because it was like, this is what we all mm. do as a society now. And, you know, it was kind of, for a long time, it was kind of that, you know, trivia thing. Like, did you know that The Mask was based on a comic book? But it's, it was a comic that none of the kids I knew had read. Um, so, yeah, it's it's it wasn't until preparing for this that I finally sat down and tried to figure out what this thing was based on. Yeah, I, I had a similar experience. I was, um, I believe I was 11 years old uh, when this movie came out. And I knew Jim Carrey, you know, back from uh, when he was on In Living Color. Uh, I'm not sure if you ever watched that, but that was that was yeah. my introduction to him. And then, you know, Ace Ventura came out and and I'm like, oh, that's the, you know, Fire Marshal Bill. He's on, he's got he's got he's in the movies now. And then and then The Mask and, and Dumb and Dumber. Um, and yeah, that was kind of like his big trilogy of movies early on that like everybody went and went to see. And, uh, and I remember at that time, um, 
I think even even now and definitely at that time too, uh, the mask was definitely my favorite of it. It was you know me being a fan of superhero comics and everything. It was very much in the wheelhouse of the stuff I was into. And they had the animated series too. I'd only watched a few episodes of that. I'd never seen uh, a whole lot of it, but I wasn't familiar with the comics. It wasn't until years later that I found out there was a comic book. And I remember picking up um, one of the trade paperbacks, I think. And I, I had to have been like maybe 12 or 13 at the time at the comic book store. And, and the clerk, he's like, Oh, you're buying the mask, huh? I'm like, yeah. And he's like, you like the movie, don't you? I'm like, yeah. And he's like, Book's very different. I'm like, okay. And he's like, yeah. He's like, Stanley's not such a nice guy in this. I'm like, okay, all right, we'll give it a try. And um, and that was my first introduction to the comic. Uh, about a year or two ago, I picked up um, one of the omnibuses, which had like all the early stories. Uh, of And the, the best way to describe it, which was kind of described on, I'm taking this from Wikipedia, is it's um, basically it's, uh, it's like Tex Avery meets the Terminator is kind of how it was described. And I think that's a pretty accurate description of it. Yeah. And what what I found interesting that I didn't realize until just recently is that by the time the actual issue one of the mass comic book came out, Stanley Ipkiss was dead. And yeah. it was about L- Lieutenant Callahan, the guy in the movie that's just like the annoying cop falls him around. He was the, the mask. Well, he was big head. It wasn't even called the mask in the, in the comic. And like, Stanley, he was investigating like the serial killer Stanley Ipkiss and found the mask in evidence. Um, Stanley Ipkiss actually came from uh, the three shorts that ran as part of an anthology book mm-hmm. uh, called Mayhem. That like that's all there is to Stanley Ipkiss is those three little shorts, and it's amazing that like that's what became the franchise and the animated series and all this. And that's why when I was trying to figure out which one I want to talk about. Like, the ones that fascinate me, even if they're not, like, my favorite comic book movies, I'm always fascinated by the ones that aren't, like, you know, there's there's always going to be another Marvel movie, and, like, that, that comes from some corporate database. But, like, when there's some, like, creator that's made something weird and unique, and then they get the call, and I'm like, somebody's getting paid today. And that's amazing. Like, I've, I've had... Uh, <laughs> I've had some of my comics, like, no end product has come out, but there have been things that have been in development and working. Like, when you get that email, especially, like, the one that uh, was in development for me was, a like, webcomic that, like, no one read and, uh, like, I forgot that I made and uh, one of the world's largest companies uh, emailed me and said, are the rights available for this? And I'm like, wait, what? <laughs> How did you even hear about this? So that's kind of what I imagine, like, when they when they went to the people uh, that made the mask and just being like, hey, can we turn this into a multi-million dollar uh, kids movie? And they're like, um, okay, I guess. I'm sure it had to be something. I'm sure it had to feel like that. Like, that it, it didn't, I'm sure that wasn't something that was on their radar. Yeah, so uh, we're both creators, uh, but obviously you've had more experience on the adaptation front than I have. I unfortunately have not yet gotten one of those emails, although I am definitely waiting for them. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, I got to imagine that that's such a... I, I've got friends who have had, gotten those emails, though, and just got to imagine that's such a surreal experience, especially when they've told me about it and they're like, so the email comes first, and then don't get too excited because then you, it's just the email. Like you don't know what will happen after that. It, something may come of it, but you know, 
nine times out of ten, they're just like putting feelers out there, and they're not ne- just because they sent you that first email saying they're interested doesn't mean it's actually going to end up in a movie or a TV show or anything like that. Yeah, I've actually gotten that the email like hundreds of times, and like mm-hmm. what's funny is a lot of times if the like I when it first started happening, every time you're like, oh my god, my life is about to change. Uh, but then eventually you realize that like uh, 99 out of 100 of them, they say the first email is, hey, we really love your book. We would love to make an adaptation of it. Tell me, are the rights available? And I say yes. And they say, that's great. Can you send me a free copy so I can read it? Mm-hmm. And I'm like, wait, how do you love my book if you don't even know what it is? Yeah. And then you, and then you send it to them and you never hear from them again. Yeah. Because I think they just, you know, they just hear about something and they're not going to bother like, they're not even going to waste their time Googling what something is or let alone read it until they know if there's money to be made off of it. So they pretend they like it to get a free book. And I'm like, you could just say you haven't read it. Mm-hmm. That's fine. Like yeah. you don't have to lie. <laughs> but like, yeah, I, 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 I did have one that actually made it pretty far along in the process. Um, like they, they paid to license to um, the option for it. They were developing, they were uh, talking to cast and they're getting ready to shoot a pilot and then it all fell apart. And that's kind of what interested me about the mask is that what I related to is the changes that happen in adaptation. I'm, I'm uh, famously like, I don't care if, if someone adapts my work and makes it completely different, uh, like what happened with the mask, like that's fine with me. I number, if, if someone is, has a creative take on what I do and makes it completely different and makes something amazing, that's great. If someone is very loyal to what I make and makes something like a just live action version of what I wrote, that's also great. But if someone makes something terrible and uh, everyone's takeaway is the comic was better, that's also great for me because mm-hmm. my comic still exists. There's so, that. Uh, um, sorry, go ahead, finish. So yeah, so like my comic still exists. So I always look at it as I would love to see what someone's going to do with this. But then the one thing that they wanted to do for my comic is turn it into a vehicle for someone else. Like the mask was very much a Jim Carrey vehicle. It was more based on Jim Carrey's comedy than it was the original comic. Mm -hmm. And they wanted to turn my comic into a vehicle for a young actor. But the problem is my comic was about uh, a young Asian American girl trying to fit in and the, actor they wanted to turn to a vehicle for was very much not Asian. Mm-hmm. And um, and I just lightly questioned that decision and that was enough to have them like just completely cancel the show. <laughs> yeah, they're um the you know I've I've softened on uh that difference of adaptation thing because it used to, you know, when I was younger it definitely used to stick in my craw. It's like, oh this was nothing like the comic. But I've softened on that in a lot of aspects. I mean, uh, Constantine is one of the one of the movies I always point to. Where first time I saw that movie, I hated it because it was I was a huge fan of the Hellblazer comics. Nothing like the character. Um, but then a few years ago, I watched it again, and I'm and I was watching it, and I'm like, this is actually pretty damn good. <laughs> you know, just forget yeah. the fact that you know it's not at all like the character from the comic books, but it's actually a pretty entertaining movie. Um, so yeah, I, I've softened on that a lot myself, uh, and um, yeah, I get what you're saying. Like some of those choices they make. Um, one of my favorite stories is uh, about the crow, 
when um, they were trying to adapt it. And James O'Barr, the creator, was sitting in this meeting with all these Hollywood types. And one of these executives, he goes like, I've got it. We can turn this into a musical. We can get Michael Jackson to play the lead and it'll be great. And O'Barr thought the guy was joking and he starts laughing. And then everybody in the room just kind of turns to him and looks at him like he's crazy. And he's like, wait, 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 wait. you were serious. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. So that your story about, you know, the story about this eight, this, eight, this girl uh, and what it's like growing up. Um, with an Asian identity and they wanted to use it as a vehicle for a non-Asian actor reminded me of that story. Um, but also to your point too, yeah, there's that, there's that famous uh, Raymond Chandler quote when he was asked, you know, how do you, how he feels about Hollywood butchering his movies. And he just, and I don't know if this is apocryphal or what, but this is something I've heard many times over the years. And he just kind of, he points to the bookshelf and he's like, Hollywood hasn't done anything to my movies, the, my books. The books are still right there on the shelf. You know, the movies are their own thing, but the books still exist. They're, even if they make a bad movie, it's not going to go ahead. And, it's not going to be destroying the book or anything like that. Yeah, a lot of times, like, if if the movie is too faithful and it ends up replacing the book, people are like, oh, we don't need to read the book. But if the conversation around it is, oh, this is different from the book, this is different from the book, then more people won't be interested in reading the book. So mm-hmm. I think, you know, I... I'm I'm very loosey goosey about how adaptations work. When when I watch films, I'm like, you know, same thing. When I was a kid, I would stress out about it. Like, you know, I, I it was tantamount to murder in my mind of the crime of not adapting something right. Now I'm like, it's all we're all weirdos making art. Like, mm-hmm. some weirdo made some art, and then another weirdo made some other art with a similar idea, and they and they paid him a lot of money to be able to do it. So hey, like. With Mask, I don't know what their contract was. I don't know how Dark Horse contract works. Like with Image, I know it was all um, creator-owned. So if one of those mm-hmm. becomes a movie, the creator gets all the money. I don't, I'm not sure how it was with Dark Horse, if uh, if Dark Horse got a big paycheck or the, the creators did. But, um, you know, it, it had to have been financially uh, good for them, everything that came out of the Mask, all the, you know, the movie, the sequel, the animated. Like even, even, if, that, um, even if that sequel... Didn't make any money. I'm sure that the creators of the mask got a couple of bucks. Yeah, I'm not. I'm not quite sure about the mask. Is a I think usually with Dark Horse, uh, I think it's usually uh, the same, cre- a similar creator owned situation as it is with Image. But the mask is kind of a unique situation. Um, just what I, and I'm just going off the Wikipedia uh, entry here. So apologies if I've got any of this um, any of this wrong. But um, the the base concept was created by Mike Richardson. Um, and uh, he had pitched it to uh, Dark Horse Comics with uh, Mark Badger. And this was a strip called um, Mask, but it was spelled M-A-S-Q-U-E that ran in early issues of Dark Horse Presents. Um, uh, Badger's strips became um, much more political. And then Richardson ended the strip to bring the character back to the original concept. Uh, Chris Warner yeah, that, was hired. Those... So yeah, yeah, those early strips. Uh, it's funny because he looks more like Ghostface from Scream than he does the Mask. Like, I, I wonder where if, if the concept was even there at that point that he was green because those are black and white strips, and it just looks like a long skull face. I'm wondering if the green thing came in later, or if like, or if that was always in their mind. But yeah, it was more more about an assassin that wore a mask to hide his identity and a mask like made him a little more powerful than anything resembling what anything that came after that. 
Yeah, and then uh, Chris Warner was hired after that to revamp the character, bring it closer to Richardson's original uh, drawing of the character, and he kind of created like the definitive look. And then this ended up being, and then John Arcudi and Doug Monkey were hired to 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 do the the stories um, at first in Mayhem numbers one to four, and they kind of established what the character is. So I'm not sure if Arcudi and Monkey were doing it in under um, a work for hire contract or if it's uh, if they had any sort of ownership over the character. So I don't know what the, the deal is, but it's uh, uh, probably a little bit more complex than most of the yeah. Dark Horse stuff. Like, I mean, you know, Mike Mignola, for example, pretty sure he owns Hellboy outright. But um, mm-hmm. but uh, yeah, the mask seems like a, a unique thing. And talking about what was originally intended for this, because Chuck Russell, the director of this, he, um, you know, he was known for A Nightmare on Elm Street 3, Dream Warriors. Um, he also did a remake of uh, The Blob. And uh, so he was known for horror movies. And just also as a side note, he's uh, he's from Park Ridge, which is like literally like five minutes away from the town I grew up in. So I thought that was a nice little thing I just noticed. Um but he, uh, but I think they intended it as a horror vehicle at first. Like they were kind of like, okay, we want this to become a new horror franchise. Um, that's how it was originally pitched to New Line, and you know, based on that original comic, that would make a lot of sense. And then I think it was um, Russell actually found the violence to be off-putting. He wanted to be less grim, more uh, and less adult-oriented, and more family-friendly. And I think eventually after that. You know, they toned down the script and everything, um, and uh, then they eventually got uh, Jim Carrey for the role. Um, and Car- the the role, the script was rewritten for Jim Carrey specifically based on um, his his work in In Living Color. Uh, so that that was kind of like how he came about. And um, and yeah, it was. I mean, let, let's talk about what your opinions were of it now. What did you think rewatching this movie? I'm not sure how many times you've watched it since, you know, you saw it as a kid. I mean, me, I don't think I've seen this movie in at least 20 years before last night. So this was, it was almost like rediscovering it in a way for me. How about you? Yeah. For me as a kid, it was one of the, you know, back in the day before there was any streaming, anything, your family would own six VHS tapes and those six VHS tapes were, the movies you watch for the rest mm-hmm. of your life. And so I, we, we'd watch it like once a week just because like nothing's on TV. Let's see which one of our six VHS tapes we're going to watch. <laughs> so I knew it like backwards, forwards, every line, every movement and watching it again. Like I, you know, I, I, I leading up to it, I'm like, I don't remember everything that happens in it. And then once I turn it on, I'm like, my mind is six seconds ahead, but watching it after having read the comics, it's, it was a, weird experience seeing exactly where it diverged and like you feel like you can you can feel where that original script was and feel exactly where they diverged from it because it's like the the setup is almost exactly the same as those original comics like you start off in edge city um and then he finds the he finds the mask in a different way but then he talks about how he wants to be a superhero but after he gets some revenge first it's almost the exact same lines and then there's even some of the same shots, like um, when he gets revenge on the thugs and they do that Tommy, you know, makes a Tommy gun out of a balloon. Mm. That's like shot for shot from the comics, except, of course, in the comics, he then fills them, fills them full of bullet holes. 
and they're bloodied all over the sidewalk um, instead of running away comically to funny music. Mm-hmm. And then the exact same scene with the mechanics and the police come in to see them, except instead of the, um, you know, the car parts comically shoved up the rear ends, they're like shoved through their skull and blood's pouring out. Mm-hmm. So it, it feels like they, they, for the, at least the first half, it feels like they didn't change the film that much, uh, the script that much at all. And then I think toward the end, they kind of uh, veered a lot more from where they were going originally. But yeah, it feels like they, they, they must have separated, like the villain of the movie feels a lot like what Stanley Ipkiss himself became in the comic, when he became like an abusive boyfriend who like for him the mask was more like an addiction and like he just was obsessed with revenge and um i feel like uh you know as a kid i loved it and i still thought it was funny even if some of the earlier jim carrey movies can feel kind of grating now like it still works with the mask because of the tone of the movie and the way it all works uh so i still had a lot of fun watching it and i think that it was a good idea to alter it in that way um especially you know if you're working with jim carrey you're you know especially at that time i think it's a good idea to turn it into a vehicle for him and uh and i guess it kind of changed the whole franchise that the comics started being based on the movies more than they were the original comics and using designs from the animated series so i still had a lot of fun watching it yeah i was surprised because uh, how much I really enjoyed rewatching it. Cause you know, sometimes when you go back to those, those uh, old movies, you watch as a kid and my, my family had that exact same situation as yours, right? It was one of like the, the six VHS tapes we, we owned. And I watched this tape incessantly, right? Uh, this was definitely my favorite of uh, the Jim Carrey vehicles out at that time. Um, and I like the other ones, but you're right. Like, you know, Ace Ventura, I had a chance to rewatch that a few years ago and it was it was painful <laughs> to watch. Actually, it was it was really hard to watch it again. That humor just does not age well. But this surprisingly held up pretty well. And sometimes when you're watching those movies that you loved as a kid, you'll sometimes have that experience where it's just like, oh my god, what the hell was I thinking? Like how how did I find this this entertaining? The other reaction is very much in, you know, you get nostalgia brain. You're like, oh, my God, this is so awesome. I totally get why I love this. And I definitely had that that latter reaction towards it. Um, I mean, there were some ma- minor quibbles I had with it, uh, which we can get to. But you mentioned about the divergence from the comic. And I think you're right. Um, you know, my memory of the comic is a little bit faded because I haven't read it. It's been a few years since I read it. But I do remember those specific scenes you were talking about, especially the... Um, the auto scene, uh, the, with the, with the auto shop and the, um, and the violence and all that. But yeah, you're right. The, the whole idea of Stanley, Stanley's transformation and how the mask kind of drives him insane. That's not in the movie at all. Instead, you kind of take the dark aspects of Stanley and you separate it into Dorian and the mask in the movie now is instead of, um, being, instead of driving the the wearer insane like it does in the comics with all the power it instead it enhances whatever the um whatever's already in the person to begin with kind of like you know Erskine said in about in Captain America about the super soldier serum right you know you know it en- enhances whatever's there so good becomes better bad becomes worse the mask is kind of a similar thing so 
like Stanley says in that one scene, if you're if you're a little repressed and a hopeless romantic, then you become this love obsessed wild man. Whereas if you're someone like Dorian, then he says we're all in big trouble. Yeah, Dorian was the part of the movie that uh, bothered me most, but it, it was the part that bothered me as a kid too. Like I, I think he's just a really boring villain because his, his thing is he gets the mask and then like he doesn't really do anything with the mask. Like he still just walks into the club like a normal person, ordering people around, and he still like tells his thugs to shoot people. And it's like, don't you have superpowers now? Like, isn't the whole point that you don't need to tell thugs to shoot people? And then, like, sure, bullets bounce off of him later. But, like, that was only because he wanted to show off that skill. Like, he didn't need to stand there and be shot. Mm -hmm. uh, he still let other people do all his work. Like, it, and I, I, as a kid, I always, like, that, the makeup for him is so ugly and not, like, in a fun way. Mm -hmm. It's just, like... The hair, to begin with, makes it look weird, but, like, it doesn't even look like an exaggeration of him. It just, like, he turns into, like, a thick-necked, like, pointy-chin guy for no reason. Like, just make him look like the mask. I don't know. And have him, like, you know, he's not going to do the Tex Avery stuff, but if they were able to uh, give him a new way of moving that, like, was based on, like, you know, character in an action movie as opposed to a comedy, like, it would have been more interesting. But, like, it just felt like it just felt like he was wearing a Halloween mask and not transforming into something else. I agree. Yeah. I noticed that I never noticed that as a kid, but I definitely noticed that this time around because, um, and I also noticed how in this time around, I also noticed how, you know, there's all these things having to do with cartoon characters that Stanley's into, right? He, he has the screwball classics on, on video videotape. He, um, he's got, uh, you know, little cartoon, you know, um, ornaments and, and furniture and, and stuff like that so so we're getting this lead in into the reason why he's this tex avery inspired character is the mask is because this is the kind of stuff he's into this is the kind of stuff that that he likes so that influences his behavior and how he uses the powers it would have been really interesting if we had seen some of that with dorian as well but you're right we don't um, I thought the hair thing was kind of funny, because <laughs> uh, just because of that that high poof. But otherwise, I think they were trying to take some inspiration for the comics and make him similar to to Walter, who's um, one of the enemies that the mask faces. Uh, that's the only thing I could think of to as to why they went that route. But otherwise, yeah, that's that was a definite missed opportunity to do something interesting with him and show the differences between their characters in how he uses the powers differently. Instead, we only yeah, see him using the bullets, and that's it. Yeah, but even the way the mask works, it feels like, you know, when Stanley Ipkiss puts on the mask, he becomes a completely different person and doesn't even remember. Mm -hmm. Like, he's not even sure if that really happened. Whereas Dorian will be in the middle of a conversation, put on the mask, and then continue the conversation, like, as though he's the same person. Like, it, it just didn't feel like it was consistent in the way the mask worked. That's a good point, too. I think... You could probably work around that by saying that Stanley's so repressed that it brings out this completely different personality. But and that would have been I, you're not going to have you're not going to do that in like a, a family friendly movie that's um, that's intended to be a vehicle for Jim Carrey. But there, that would be an interesting angle to explore from like a, a character psychology point of view. Like why does Dorian remember who he is? Why is he? 
you know, they're why is he not like a completely different character when he puts on the mask versus Stanley, who becomes like a completely different person? That would be a very interesting idea to explore, but we don't have the time or the interest in the filmmakers mm-hmm. to really pursue that angle in this movie. Yeah, I think what might have been interesting, because we see him plotting against the bigger boss the whole time, <laughs> what might have been interesting is if he as a villain were like afraid of that guy. And, you know, and every everything that held him back was because he showed the respect to him and like uh, like bowed down to him. And then maybe he was stealing the mask on behalf of of his larger boss. But then when he puts it on, that's when it puts out the repressed like hatred. And then he becomes this unpower. You know, maybe then he kills the the bigger boss and wants all the power for himself. Like it would be interesting to see him in some way change, and then that's what you know makes him more. You know, not that he. If he were a villain throughout, but then he became an even bigger, more powerful villain, I think it would have made the end scene more interesting. I think so, too. I think, you know, anything that we got that would have expanded on his character more, because as it stands, his character is just very flat. I mean, he's just like out of the, you know, the Goomba stock footage (laughs) website or something like that. He's just, you know, very one note. I mean... You know, Reggie Cathy, who plays, you know, one of his uh, his henchmen who who dies, seems to get more, seems to have more to work with than Dorian does in the entire film. Um, But let's talk about uh, Jim Carrey, because one of the things that didn't hold up as well for me in this was um, I love him as the mask, but I think as Stanley, he I think this is part of just, you know this being the time it was made in him being a a young unexperienced actor at the time he was doing what people expected out of him i felt like he was still a little bit too jim carrey-ish even when he was in the stanley mode mm-hmm. i think it would have been better if he was a little bit uh like the you know like the the line about how at the beginning he's like i think i'm wearing her down and like those little he has these little quips and these little jim carrey mannerisms that i think detract from the idea of Stanley being this repressed nice guy. Yeah, it just feels like he's performing for the camera, which in a, in a role like Ace Ventura, where that's his whole thing is he's performative and like weirds people out, that works. Even if now watching it, it's a little less fun to watch, but it's still funny. But like with, I think you're right that with the mask, because the whole point is that he becomes that person, it would be more powerful if he allowed the Stanley Ipkiss character to be more oppressed and not performative and more quiet and then let that come out of him as big head, or I don't know if we should call him big head or the mask, but as the green guy mm-hmm. and, you know, um, but yeah, all, all of those little like things that like, it feels like he's in a sketch comedy and like reading off a cue card and doing it in the funniest way possible. But for those scenes that might've been funnier, if like, if we could see Jim Carrey, being quiet, but like the the knowledge in our minds that like this is like this is not how Jim Carrey is supposed to talk would have I think made it really funny because we know that like it's coming. Yeah, I think if he was a little bit more buttoned up as Stanley, you know, I mean it's been a while since I've seen it, but my memory of Liar Liar, I think like before he starts he has the truth thing go on and he's this more, you know straight laced 
you know, type of guy, I think would have worked a lot of, a lot better if he had done that kind of thing. I think part of, and I, I know Jim Carrey's got the chops for it. We've seen him do like much more serious acting roles since, but I think at this time he just wasn't experienced enough. There just wasn't that desire in the part of the producers to, to see him do anything like that. So it was just kind of like, you know, do the rubber face zany, zany routine was kind of their approach to it. And I guess, you know, he wanted to show off some of the rubber face stuff before, like, his face was covered in CGI. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that too. Um, but that actually brings us to talking about the him as the mask. Uh, and I think we'll just stick to calling him the mask because that's what he refers to himself in the movie as. And and then in the comics, they later got a, they got away from the big head thing and they started calling him the mask as well. That was one of the, the things they kind of adopted from the movie. Um they'd said that they had actually saved a lot on special effects budget because of how, um, how limber he is, how, how exaggerated his expressions are. And so they were able to, to really utilize that a lot. And he, he is just relishing that. Like the fake teeth he wears, uh, as the mask, those were originally only intended for, uh, silent scenes, but, Kerry actually taught himself how to speak with them so that he could speak as the mask with those teeth and have them on the entire time. Little things like that were a really good touch and they really helped. I mean, I love him as the mask. I think it's, it's still a great performance. What did you think of that? Yeah, I, I love it. It's like, it's the role that he was born for, like to act like a human cartoon. That's what he loved to do at that time. And, um, and all of his movements and everything. And yeah, like you just plus it a little bit with some eyeballs popping out or, or something like that. And it, you know, use CGI to make him jump a little bit higher, but like those, those effects wouldn't work if he didn't, wasn't already moving like a cartoon character. Like there are moments where like you see the CGI on like the dog or someone or another character and you're like, Oh, this is really dodgy, (laughs) you know, 90s CGI. But anytime it's on Jim Carrey, it works. Like, it still stands up because they have to do so little of it to make him look like a cartoon. Like, when you put a, a dog, wouldn't work. Like, you put those bulgy eyes on a dog, and it's going to – it's it's not going to work. So they need to put a full dog head, and the seams really show. But with Jim Carrey, it's just the, the, little, the little bit that you have. Kind of like how – that's why Jurassic Park still holds up is because they – they they spent so much money on these amazing animatronics that they can just plus it a little bit with CGI and then put CGI where it works. And that's kind of like Jim Carrey's face became the whole of Jurassic Park where it's like, you know, let's just plus this a little bit, plus this a little bit. And then, you know, talking about the CGI, that was something that really kind of uh, surprised me going back to this, because, yeah, there are there are some scenes where it gets a little bit dodgy. I can forgive the dog stuff because that's just something so outrageous that it actually kind of works in that in that instance. But other stuff like the first time he puts on the mask and you've got the bad CGI of the mask forming around his face, that was definitely dodgy. Um, but a lot of other CGI, I was very surprised at how well the the effects in this movie held up. Um, Jurassic Park is a good comparison uh, because you know Jurassic Park they use that mix of CGI and live action Terminator two also did something similar to that. And they had a lot of that in, in this movie as well. You compare it something to, to spawn 
which came out, you know, in 97, just three years later. And the CGI in that movie is just utter dog shit. Uh, but this one, it, they, they had the, they had the good sense to just use as much CGI as they, the bare minimum that they had to, and then the rest, they relied on practical effects. And I think the result is something that surprisingly still holds up a lot today. Yeah, there was this very thin window in the very early days of CGI where they're like, we know this doesn't look great, uh, so let's just figure out exactly the bare minimum we can use to make this look good and work really hard on the physical things on the set to make sure it blends in well. And they really had to think about how they did it. And that lasted for a very short time, and those movies still stand up. Mm -hmm. And then right after that, they're like, well, it worked for them. Let's just do a bunch of CGI. And they were not ready for that. And they did not, you know, do the same planning to make things work on set. And they're like, oh, well, the CGI guys will fix it all in post. And the CGI guys are like, yeah, we can't fix this. And this <laughs> isn't going to look great. We're working on video toasters at this point. It's the mm -hmm. 90s. And, uh, yeah, some of the movies don't work out great. Even today, like, you know, movies that came out four or five years ago will, even if the special effects are a lot better, um, because... Because nowadays directors are, that's what they do. They're like, well, we'll act this all out on a green screen. Everybody is in green pajamas and, you know, they'll work that out later. Mm -hmm. Like, because they don't do that planning and think about it, even a movie made five years ago with, you know, $100 million effects, uh, right now you can look at it and be like, eh, I don't know about that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, CGI has come a long way, and I'm definitely not someone who is anti-CGI, but I think there is... There's something to be said for for practical effects. There's something to be said for finding that nice balance uh, between the two. And this movie definitely struck that balance. I was really impressed with it. Um, and and um, and how much a lot of the the humor even surprisingly holds up because, like I said, you watch you go back and you watch Ace Ventura. That humor's rough, but this one, the joke, yeah. and I think it's it's because it's it's such a cartoon focused movie that the humor still works. Um, as opposed to Ace Ventura, which was just more the standard adult or like, I guess, teed humor at the time would be more accurate. Um, but let's talk about some of the scenes that really kind of stood out to us. What were some of the things that, that you really enjoyed uh, rewatching uh, this time around? Well, I mean, just the, especially that first time when he becomes the mask and goes to the club, like all of the, like, as a kid, like, I, you know, I had watched all Looney Tunes. I knew who Tex Avery was. So as soon as he, like, turns into a wolf and whistles, and I'm like, Red Hot Riding Hood. I get that reference. You know, I'm, <laughs> I'm Captain America saying I understand that reference. And, like, the dance and everything. Like, that's just, like, that's one of the best special effects you can have is just put Jim Carrey on some stairs and be like, do weird stuff with your legs. Mm -hmm. And, like, he does that for several minutes before they even do anything, any special effects to his le legs. He's just doing weird stuff with his legs, and it works. Yeah, absolutely. Um, the yeah the the Coco Bongo scene was great. Um, one of my favorites is still the Cuban Pete dance number when he gets all the cops doing it. Like oh, yeah. I just like that scene is always jumps out in my memory when I think about this movie, and and also just like that that one line at the end when he when Kellaway's talking about how you know you know cops singing and dancing in the street it's ridiculous, and then. And then his partner is like, the SWAT team got an offer to open in Vegas. That's <laughs> just one of those lines that always makes me laugh. Yeah, and the Cuban Pete thing is one of the ones where, like, it's funny. And then you think about, like, how that actually works. Like, does he have 
the power to mind control everyone mm-hmm. everyone in the city like that's a that's a power that like the bad guy could have done something with yeah i mean that's because yeah like the the problem with the mask is that it it does basically grant these unlimited powers to whoever wears it and if you're going to give the mask to a villain then and you're not going to use anything like it that does create a logic problem it's like well he's got all this power how come he's not using it um so yeah that that's another like we talked about before that was that big issue with dorian is we don't really see why it's so terrible for him to have the mask they never show us that they tell us it's bad but they never actually show us what makes him so bad if anything it just makes him confident enough to to strike back at, at at Nico, the crime boss. Otherwise, it doesn't really do much for him. Uh, okay, so um, what other things are good to talk about? Oh, I want to talk about Cameron Diaz because this was her first movie. And I remember as a kid watching this movie, I was stunned by her. She was like the most gorgeous woman I had seen at that point in my life. And... Um, it's kind of funny to go back and watch this and see how a lot of her role in this movie is just built on her sex appeal. And it wasn't until later when we get to like, um, uh, something about Mary that we find out, Oh, she's actually really good at the comedy stuff too. Yeah. And she was really smart in her career. Like I, I remember hearing an interview of her talking about how, like she knew at the beginning, her acting wasn't where she wanted it to be. Mm-hmm. And so, like, after this movie blew up, she had a whole bunch of offers for films, and she turned them down because she's like, I need to learn how to act first so that when I get my next chance, it doesn't, like, blow up in my face. And that, I think that's incredibly intelligent to have that, like, presence of mind and knowledge of yourself to be like, you know, and of course, her acting in this movie is great, Uh but, uh, you know, I, I guess she felt that, um, you know, apparently I can do this one specific thing, but I want to show there's more to me than that. So I'm going to take acting classes and then choose exactly the right roles. And it uh, it worked out for her. Definitely. Yeah. Um, I didn't know that she had uh, she had done that, that she had had that uh, presence of mind to, to think that far ahead. But that was definitely a, a very smart career move. Um and, and yeah, her acting is not by any means bad in this movie. If anything, it's just that the role is, there's not really much to the role to begin with. I mean, no, she's, yeah. she's literally just written there to be the love interest. And, but she still does manage, like she still brings that like um, innocent, uh, humorous quality to her performance. Like when she's, she's sitting there in the bank and, you know, it's the, that whole point of that scene is just about what a knockout she is. And yet, she still got this, like, you know, this approachable innocence about her, too, in that scene. Yeah, and, like, you introduce the character as, like, in the process of robbing a bank. Mm-hmm. And then that's just kind of like, you know, as you move on, you're just like, yeah, let's just forget about that, that bit. Like, you know, of course, it's because her boyfriend is a mobster, and, like, you slowly realize, like, she doesn't really have uh, a choice in this matter. But, yeah, it's, it's an... It's it's an interesting arc that the script doesn't really do much with, but then again, that's because it, it's a Jim Carrey vehicle. It's not a, a vehicle for exploring all of these side characters. It's like we need to set up for Jim Carrey to do funny bouncy things. Mm-hmm. And it's it's sad she she is great in this movie, but it's sad that like her most memorable scene, like the dance scene, is where she spends half of it as like 
a CGI blob that's being spun around and thrown up in the air. Yeah. Now, I'm not under it. It's again, it's been a long time since I've read that that first omnibus, and I'm not sure if there was ever any sort of explanation as to the mask's origins, where it comes from, or anything like that. Uh, but in the movie, they do this whole thing with, um, you know, it's very strongly suggested that it's actually uh, Loki was banished. Odin had banished Loki, um, you know, the Norse trickster god into the mask. And so that's kind of why it's like creates this kind of mischievous persona. Um, what did you think of that explanation? Did you remember that from the comics or was that completely from the movie as far as you know? And what did you think of it? Yeah, I think every single incarnation of the mask has had a completely different origin story. Uh, whether it's whichever run of the comics or whichever issue of the comics or the movie or the sequel or the animated series, it's always different. And yeah, I, I think that the movie does the good job of giving it the bare minimum. Just like you know, it doesn't matter. There's a mask that makes you do crazy stuff, mm-hmm. and they, you know, especially the way he's talking with uh, Ben Stiller's character, that it's like this is the origin story they give in the in the movie is Jim Carrey's um, imagining of what it might be based on what he read in this book. Mm-hmm. And then they immediately cut to the guy who wrote the book being like, yeah, it doesn't mean any of that. What are you talking about? I wrote a book about metaphors. <laughs> and so I think it's funny to like give you just enough that you be like, okay, it's a magical, I don't know, mythological, mythological thing. And then if you want, you completely disregard that because there's nothing official saying it until the sequel and, Loki is a character and comes in and it's, um, I still haven't seen son of mask, but the clips I've seen make me not want to. Yeah. I've, I've, I've never seen it either. I've only heard, you know, I only know about it by reputation and it, it's definitely not a good reputation. Um, so I'm not in any rush to, to check it out. Um, yeah. Uh, the Ben Stein thing, uh, is a good thing to mention too, because, uh, we haven't talked about him yet. That was a, that was a nice little addition seeing him in that, um, you know, obviously everybody knows him as the Bueller Bueller guy for the most part. Um, I thought it was interesting to see him. I love that line he says at the end when he's trying to, like Stanley is like kind of forcing himself into his office and um, Dr. Newman just has no time for him. And he's just like, I, I, I wrote this book about a metaphor and you're taking it way too literally and coming here with this mask. And he's just like, look, and then and Stanley's saying, like, well, you know, I'm supposed to go meet her tonight. Should I go as myself or should I go as the mask? And he's like, if I tell you, will you just go away right now? Yeah, and the, the acting when, when Jim Carrey's going to put on the mask and show him and then it doesn't work. Mm-hmm. And he does that weird thing. That's, that's a great scene. That's one of those, like, where he's a special effect. Like, just have him bob his head back and forth a little bit, make a weird sound. And like even the little bit of his face you can see through the slits in the mask, like that's like he's so expressive that you can feel the face through that mask. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I, I can't I can't believe I called Ben Stein Ben Stiller. <laughs> it's okay. I make mistakes like that all the time. Um uh but also um so another thing about Cameron Diaz is apparently Anna Nicole Smith was originally who they had wanted for the part, but she was busy with Naked Gun 33 and the third. And um uh, a costume director had actually recommended Cameron Diaz and the character was originally written a little bit more like the, the Amy Yazbek character, the Peggy Brandt character where she seems good, but she's actually bad at the end. Uh, but because of Cameron Diaz's, you know, 
after they cast her, they're just like that that role doesn't work for this this actress. So they rewrote the role to make her a genuinely good person who's kind of forced into doing the, these bad things. Um, and I think that definitely worked. Uh, so then that leads to um, uh, Peggy, the reporter in this movie. What did you think of of her in the movie and Amy Yazbek's performance? Yeah, I remember uh, as a kid, like even though that's like one of the most basic twists, like her turning turning him in was like the biggest, most shocking twist in the world as a kid. But yeah, I love that character. I love the comedy of like uh, when she's introduced and it's like the second time that a, that a woman goes straight to uh, to Stanley and like stresses out his friend. Um, I think that whole run is good. And, and the way they end the character uh, with her uh, turning him in was, was pretty funny. Um, yeah, I, I, I enjoyed that. Yeah, apparently like she just disappears after that scene. And... Um, Part of the reason for that is because apparently in the and you can read this in the um, in the comic adaptation of the movie, she was originally supposed to be killed in the script, uh, but they had taken that. I'm not sure if they have ever they ever filmed that, but they had cut that out of the movie um, just because they didn't want to have that kind of they didn't want to have that level they didn't want to have it like that level of seriousness in this movie. Which then she ended up being in the animated series that was based on um, on this movie too. Um, apparently he also, uh, the mask also appears in Space Jam, A New Legacy. So he, I, I never saw that movie, oh, yeah. but he's got an appearance in there apparently. Um, yeah, well, it's, it's just in a, in a crowd scene, there's like a million characters. And it's just, it's not like, it's, they just get like, it look, basically looks like a bunch of coast players standing on a basketball court. And this is just like in the background of shots. But yeah, that's a weird shot in Space Jam where it's, uh, it's him next to the nuns from uh, what is that X-rated movie? It's like a there's like an X-rated movie about like uh, like murderous nuns that uh, is, has been banned in the United States and like hasn't been released in like forty years, and they're like in it next to Jim Carrey in a children's movie about Bugs Bunny. It's very strange. I I've I I, I vaguely know what you're talking about. I can't remember the name of it though, but I've definitely heard of that before. Uh, we also had um, uh, Peter Rygard as Kellaway in this movie. One of the weird things is it's funny because he was that role. They were trying to get Richard Gere for it, apparently. And when I'm watching it last night, I kept thinking he looks he keeps reminding me of Richard Gere, but his by his appearance, but his voice does not at all. And um, what did you think of what they did with Kellaway? Because obviously he's a character from the comics. They they changed him a lot from the comics, right? In the comics, he's. Mm-hmm. He starts off like he does in the movie, trying to hunt down Stanley Ipkiss and the mask, and then eventually he puts on the mask himself and becomes one of the wearers. Yeah, it, it, that's really interesting. You say it's supposed to be Richard Gere because now that I'm thinking about, it, like, it, it feels like one of those things where they're like, you know, you get hired for a role and you find out they wanted someone else, and you you wonder like, oh man, do, do they not want me here? And then like. Imagine him sitting in the makeup chair, watching them like slowly transform him into Richard Gere, and like make his hair just look look just right. And you imagine picturing like, oh, okay, they really they really wanted Richard Gere instead of me. Yeah. And I also imagine him like, I imagine what that guy must have been thinking, like when he heard they're going to do a sequel, Jim Carrey's not going to do it. He had to have been like, yes, this is my time. I know how the comics work. I know that my character takes over. And they're like. Yeah, it's Jamie Kennedy and a baby. Yeah. <laughs> he had to have been like, 
What? Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that would have been... I, that's surprising that they went that route with that, with that for the sequel. Because there's, you know... I can understand if you can't get Jim Carrey back, right? But you don't have to use it with Stanley Ipkiss because there's there are all these different characters from the comics who take it up. And yeah, it would have been more interesting to give it to Mitch Kellaway and see what he does with it. Or even, you know what? Um, cause in the, in the comics, Stanley's girlfriend, Kathy picks up, starts wearing the mask for a time, maybe do a sequel with Cameron Diaz and her character putting on the mask instead would have been, um, a lot more interesting. There you go. Yeah. But, uh, but I, I think the issue was just that they, weren't sure if those characters could do the mask acting mm-hmm. in an interesting enough way. Uh, and they thought the only person, if it's not going to be Jim Carrey, the only person that can pull off that level of comedy is Jamie Kennedy. Yeah. Unfortunately. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, but anyway, those are kind of the main things I wanted to say about the mask. Was there anything else that you wanted to mention that we haven't touched on yet? I think it was just a really fun thing to watch and it, it really felt like um it's weird because i know that in doing it the way they did with the cg and everything like it had to be planned so carefully what it was going to do but it really felt improvisational like it, it felt like um, one of those movies where it's just you know here's a, a series of setups for a scene and then let jim carrey go wild and i wonder how much of it was scripted and how much of it was like oh he did that on set i guess we have to figure out how to make that work in CG. Cause like, I, I remember there was that story of uh, when they're making flubber and in the middle of a shot, Robin Williams like pretended to put his face in flubber. And because of that one little move he did, it took him like an extra million dollars in CGI. Cause like CGI was not advanced enough for like it to wrap around someone's face. Oh wow. And so like, I wonder if, um, if any of that happened there, how much of it was like, all right, he did a weird wolf. I'm, I'm sure the wolf thing was planned as an example. Like, I don't know, he's doing a weird wolf whistle thing. I guess we got to figure out how to remove his head and <laughs> turn it into a wolf head. Um, and just, yeah, I, I think that there's just so much weird stuff going on. It's fun to watch, even if, you know, it, through the past the nostalgia glasses, it's a, it's a very weird movie. And it, it seemed like all the weirdness comes from a comic book, but it feels like if, if you didn't know this was based on a comic book, you'd be like, where, where did any of this even come from? Why would these scenes follow each other? But I think they did a good job of making it a cohesive story and, you know, turning it into a vehicle for Jim Carrey, I think gave it that um, through line that it needed to work because without his style of comedy, I think it might've been a much more confusing movie but just once you're like, yeah, it's a bunch of weird stuff that justifies Jim Carrey doing weird faces, then it, it seems to work well. Yeah, I agree. I think um, it, it was very enjoyable. Um, and I, that would be interesting to find out, you know, if there was anything, uh, anything that Jim Carrey did, because apparently he did a lot of ad-libbing on the set. So um, I do wonder what kind of things they had um, that he had done that they're like, oh, crap, now we got to figure out how to do this. Um, so that'd be an interesting thing to look up. I, I briefly glanced at the trivia on IMDb. I didn't see anything that jumped out at me. So, um, uh, uh, the main thing was just that how they, they were able to use less effects than they had planned because of Jim Carrey's performance. Um, but yeah, it's, 
it's a fun movie. It sur- holds up surprisingly well. Uh, you know, again, Jim Carrey's performance in the Stanley part of it was just much more standard. Jim Carrey wasn't that impressive. I think they could have done with a little bit more button up. But you know, when he's in the mask mode, it's 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 magic. It's again, it's great seeing Cameron Diaz in, in her first role here. Um, Peter Green as Dorian again. It's just there's not much to that character. Like I said, you know, Reggie Kethy as, as his uh, henchman has more, has more to do than in, in just his short appearance than Peter Green has in the entire movie. Um, but yeah, it holds up surprisingly well. I would definitely recommend it. And uh, the last thing I want to talk about before we close up is, did you ever watch the animated series that uh, followed this up? Yeah, I watched it on Saturday morning as a kid. It was much, much sillier. And it, it felt like each episode didn't, some of the episodes didn't really fit with the others. Like some were more about lore and some were just about like, I don't know, here's a weird thing we want to draw. Let's make an excuse to put it into this episode. Um, the other thing that fascinated me as a kid about the cartoon is that, like like I said, that was the year that uh, there was a mask animated show, a Dumb and Dumber animated show, and a, um, a uh, Ace Ventura animated show. And I forget which was which, but like some of them paid likeness rights to Jim Carrey and some of them didn't. And I think uh, the mask is the one that looks least like him and they didn't pay pay for it or, or they did pay for it. And the ones that I don't know, it, it was it was a very weird little system that they had there. But yeah, it wasn't it wasn't a great show, but it's weird that the comics ended up like becoming the mask, the animated series part two after that. Mm-hmm. Um. There's also apparently a crossover between The Mask and the Ace Ventura animated series. Um, now, my understanding of it, I I watched a few episodes way back in the day, but I never watched it regularly. Um, just from what I've read about it is that it was definitely better than the other ones, than Ace Ventura and Dumb and Dumber. And it, um, it had some pretty good um, parodies in it as well of like comics and other animated shows. So it might be worth checking out again. Although one of the things I thought was interesting is they bring back the Peggy character for the animated series. And the show is, is, you know, kind of a continuation of the movie. It, you know, they mentioned the fact that she had betrayed him. Um, It's kind of hinted that um, he kept the mask after like either he had lied when he said he threw it away or that Milo had brought it and had kept it. Or apparently it's not that clear, but um. Kellaway is back too, but they didn't bring back uh, Tina. She and she's never mentioned at all in the series. I mean, I guess they just wanted to remove any potential, you know, love interest in there and just make it uh, completely and just maybe have that will they won't they thing or have some sort of tension between him and Peggy. But um, so yeah, interesting. I'd I'd be interested in checking it out and seeing how it holds up now. Yeah, it's. I wonder. When, there, when there's weirdly specific things of one character is never mentioned, it's often there's some incredibly weird right situation mm-hmm. where like everything, you know, like if you look at the, the history of the tick, whereas like, uh, is it Ben Edlin that made the tick? Um, you know, he, he like, ran every so. single version of the tick in every TV show, but like, because he worked with these people, they own the rights to these characters that he created. So like, even though he's, doing a follow-up of his own show. Like, that's why um, Deflator Mouth became Batman well, because he didn't own the rights to his own character. So I wonder if there was some weird stuff like that. I'm always fascinated by weird 
stories of adaptation, how all that all that works. One of my favorites, it's not a comic, but have you ever heard about the adaptation uh, process of the book Cuba Mind? Uh, no, I don't believe so. Uh, it was this, this woman that wrote an autobiographical book about her time growing up in Cuba during the revolution. And it, it was doing very well. It, they Someone wanted to make a movie. They paid for the rights to make a movie. And she actually worked with uh, someone to write a script. And they were developing, de- developing it for a while. And then they came back to her and said, hey, so the movie's going to shoot soon. She's like, that's great. They're like, we made some changes. And she's like, uh, what were the changes? And they're like, well, it's not called Cuba Mine anymore. It's called Dirty Dancing 2 Havana Nights. And there's, there's not a single word of your script in it. And she's like, what does it have to do with me then? She's like, well, it takes place in Cuba, and there's someone that dances. But everything else is different. Anyway, we're going to make this movie by, and now that and now that's the adaptation of her book. It has nothing to do with her, and she can never make a movie out of her book because technically someone already did. That is so ridiculous. That is so ridiculous. I mean, these, you know, I could go on, I can go off on um, copyright situations and all that, but we're not going to get too much into that now. Uh, but instead, I, I think in summary, this movie, it did hold up a lot better than I expected it to. Uh you know, when I put this on the list of, of stuff to, to show to potential guests, um, I had picked it up, I'd found it somewhere very cheap, picked it up, and I, I, I had had it in on DVD and just haven't broken it out since I bought it. And so I've been wondering, you know, I wonder if anyone's going to pick this to watch and whether or not it will hold up. Like, how good does this compare to my childhood memory? So I'm glad you picked this. And I was pleasantly surprised by how much fun I had rewatching it. A lot of it still works. Um, So I would definitely recommend to anyone, if you either haven't seen this movie or if you haven't seen it in a while, you know, pick it up. It's worth another viewing. Yeah, I've been a little scared to uh, rewatch it. Like, I I rewatched some of the early Jim Carrey movies with my wife that, like, the ones that weren't, I thought weren't as goofy. Like we watched Liar Liar, and it was a lot more of like mugging than I remembered, and like some some of the just felt a little cringy, but it, it didn't feel cringy in the mask, I think, because they set up that world, and I enjoyed it. I, I picked it, like I said, because I want to talk about something weird. I want to talk about something where we could get into like the interesting aspects of adaptation and what they change, and I I, I had a lot of fun watching it again. Yeah. Absolutely. Uh, okay, Ryan, thank you so much for coming on the show. So why don't you tell people again uh, where they can find you? Well, uh, if you want to see my comics, go to ryanestrada.com. And pretty much everything I've ever made uh, is there. You can, there's tons of comics you can read for free. Uh, and uh, it'll tell you about all of my books that are in bookstores. Uh, I wanted to mention that on May 2nd, I have a new book coming out called Occulted. And that is the true story of how my friend grew up in a cult just down the road from Heaven's Gate uh, that taught her that Star Trek was real and Gandhi was a space alien. And it wasn't until she saw in the news about Heaven's Gate that she even knew what a cult was and then had to sneak into an abandoned library to learn the truth about the world because she was not allowed to go to school. She was not allowed to read anything about They said you can't learn about our world because it's ending. So you learn about the next one. So she had to escape to learn science that wasn't science fiction. And it's a whole true story about how she got out of it. So I hope people check that on, on May 2nd. It's called Occulted. And anything else you can find at ryanestrada.com. Oh, wow. So that sounds really interesting. Um, so yeah, it 
we record these episodes way in advance. So by the time uh, everybody is listening to this, that should already be out. So definitely go check that out. Uh, check out his website. As for us, our website is SuperheroCinephiles.com, Super Cinema Pod on Twitter and Instagram. And remember, if you subscribe to the Patreon for as little as a dollar a month, you get these episodes a week in advance with no ads. Plus, you also get access to the Superhero Cinephiles Book Club, where we have um, different people come on and we talk about comics and graphic novels about once a month or so. Uh, sometimes less frequently, as I get because I'm very busy, unfortunately, <laughs> but we try to get them off as often as possible. Uh, Ryan, thanks again for coming on, and thank you everybody else for listening, and we will talk to you next time. If you enjoy the Superhero Cinephiles, then you'll also love my companion podcast, the Superhero Cinephiles Book Club. All my Patreon subscribers get access to this exclusive podcast where I review superhero comics and graphic novels. Not sure what comics you want to read next or what you should dive into? I've got you covered on that. I'll be doing reviews, recommendations, and also talking to you about useful entry points if you're interested in reading some comics but don't know where you should start. Plus, you'll get access to all episodes of the main show a week before everyone else. On all of this, for as little as just a dollar a month, all you have to do is go to patreon.com slash supercinemapod, and you can sign up at any subscription amount to get started. Thanks so much for your support, and please don't forget to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you for listening, and as always, good night, good evening, God bless.